0: The material contained in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. You should not act or fail to act on anything based on any of the material contained herein without first consulting with a lawyer. My guests and I strive to ensure accuracy in this podcast, but we do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any of its contents. Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto and I run GS Jameson & Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I sit down with Ryan Donovan, co-owner of Richmond Station, a critically acclaimed restaurant in Toronto. Let me tell you about Ryan. He came to the studio fresh off the streetcar, carrying a copy of Thomas Piketty's recent tome on economics, Capital. He spoke excitedly about his volunteer work on boards and the opportunity to teach students at college and shape the next generation of professionals who choose to work in kitchens. He has this natural curiosity and an eye for most things around him. His work, his industry, relationships with suppliers, employees, and even his family. It's always inspiring to have a conversation with someone who critically analyzes the structure of things. This episode is about the ability of restaurateurs to design their workplace, their business, with a central focus on tipping. Abstractly, discussions surrounding the practice of tipping share a lot with more global discussions around tax havens, cartels, and unclaimed territory. It's about labor economics, social justice, culture, and ethics. Now, I was a server for a long time, and I benefited from the hospitality setup that is currently in place, the status quo. A younger me felt strongly about tipping, perhaps best explained by everyone except Mr. Pink in the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. But with Pulitzer-winning work by Kathleen Kingsbury of the Boston Globe and others, along with the simple problem that I see often, Of many restaurants trying to staff a kitchen and falling short, there are some gaping holes in that argument. Ryan suggests that ultimately, only one of two things are going to change tipping. Action by government, or the creation of a no-tipping cartel of leading restaurants in a particular region. Ryan points to Danny Meyer, owner of Union Square Hospitality Group in New York, as an example of how the industry may be able to change itself by increasing the market share of tipless, yet exceptional dining experiences, forcing servers who demand tips to move further out into terra nullius. I point to the newfound interest of the public to stick its head into the hospitality workplace and legislators' willingness to figure out how the industry is tipped. Ontario's new Protecting Employees Tips Act, outlying managers from participating in tip-outs, is an example of this. And it's getting harder for legislators to bury their heads in the sand when there are more than 1.2 million jobs plus in accommodation and food services in this country. And that sector is growing. Ultimately, with me and Ryan, we're probably both wrong. Either nothing will happen and the status quo continues on, or the change will come from the taxman seeking to get paid rather than some loftier set of principles changing the dynamics of the hospitality workplace. A tax case reported in December of last year is evidence of that. The case name is Andrew Peller Limited and the Minister of National Revenue. Peller is in Peller Estates, Winery, etc. in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Now the facts are basic. Peller had a tip-out scheme for the kitchen, decided to handle the tips that came into its restaurant, managed to tabulate them, materially redistributed them as tip-outs, and, in so doing, was required to pay years of mandatory employment-related costs, MERCs, on those tips by the court. Now, those are pension plan contributions and employment insurance costs, typically understood to be around 11% in addition to whatever the base amount is. That's not chump change, particularly when it goes back for several years. Now, this Peller case is a cautionary tale on why restaurateurs should be the ones to go full ostrich here and play willfully blind to this entire discussion. But in a world of auto-gratuity and cashless transactions, it's getting harder for establishments to suggest that they don't know or that they don't have control over this mysterious amount that gets paid out to servers. And accordingly, it seems like it's going to get harder for hospitality establishments to pretend that windfalls that are left on the table for individual servers are not contributory salary and wages, potentially revenue. It's going to be really exciting to watch this issue evolve over the next few years here's ryan donovan of richmond station on welcome to the food court
1: cool i'm really excited to, to talk man this is great
0: all right so in studio today is ryan donovan uh, co-owner of richmond station a restaurant in toronto a stopping place a stopping place that's right amazing shop amazing feel and ryan and i have worked together a bunch and he is probably one of the most thoughtful people that i've ever met in the hospitality sector or way the educational sector he teaches at george brown and in butchering because he's an all-star butcher uh he's a pretty incredible guy so he's joining me in studio today uh ryan tell us a bit about yourself well you just nailed it yeah (laughs) i did my homework for this
1: yeah i mean i i run a what we thought was going to be a small business anyways here here in the city we opened a little restaurant uh, my business partner carl and i and um, it's been a smashing success and a ton of fun it's been a real joy to. To have a business and to and to hire people and have staff and pay tax and uh, you know pay suppliers and and, and make all those decisions. Your entrepreneurship is something I've really enjoyed. You know, it's a joy to go in every day and think about what we want to do better and what we want to do next and uh, things we did yesterday that we can improve on. And it and it's in it's food and it's hospitality. So it's it's basically the best thing you can do all day every day. You get to feed people and make them some tea or go get them a whiskey and chat with them about their family and what they want to do or why they're in town. You get to host people and show them around the city, which is always great. Um, So the guests are are one component of it and and that's a lot of fun. And then the staff as well, you get to nurture people as they start their career or they're in the middle of their career or they want to change careers. Um, And, uh, and that's, and that's really fun because it, it causes me every day to think about how I was when I was in that position and the mentors that I had. And so you're constantly working with, um, What you have every day, which is both a representation of what you want to do yourself and what other people want to do, but also causes you to look back on the way you were treated or mentored or or not uh, and sort of constantly improve the way the industry works.
0: Well, let's, let's talk about how you got to where you are now, a little backstory. So you started off at Stratford.
1: Yeah, yeah. I started off in Stratford. I was uh, when I, I did a degree at U of T. And it was an arts degree, and I was so excited about it. I I graduated high school early. I started university at eighteen, and uh, was so excited about philosophy and literature. And uh, was uh, dead set on becoming a, a philosopher and an academic and uh, teaching uh, transcendental German philosophy. I learned German. I uh, studied Hegel and Fichte and Kant. I did not
0: know. Yeah, yeah, it was
1: awesome. I was uh, applied to grad school, and um, as I and I, you know, I realized, I realized when I was doing this, uh, because I'm my father's son, that it was terribly esoteric and, like, really not necessarily a brilliant career path. But I was, I was doing it for, you know, for for selfish reasons um, that that could possibly lead to a job. But I was aware that really there was a good chance they weren't. So I always worked. Uh, I worked in restaurants. I worked in restaurants my entire university career and always paid my tuition the day I got the bill, all of it at once. I lived at home with my parents and was really dead set on not having any debt when I graduated. Um, Because that was really happening when I was in university. University really, like, it sort of quadrupled in price from my first year to my fourth year, thanks to the Mike Harris government. And it was the beginning of that time when you could graduate with your degree with a ton of debt. I mean, really prior to the generation that I was in, that wasn't really true. Um, Anyway, so I I worked in restaurants and I was about to go to grad school and um, really I I, uh, surveyed a bunch of friends and family and people that were in academia and they all kind of said, eh, I don't know if I love it. I don't know if I'd do it again. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. Maybe you'll get tenure. Maybe you won't. It's not really the life I'd thought it would be. And this was a lot of different people that were in academia that I'd all were sort of on the fence about whether it was the life that they'd thought they were going to have uh, whereas at the same time everyone i worked with in restaurants absolutely loved every day they went to work they loved their life they loved work they loved their life after work they thought the people they worked with were fun and interesting the work was compelling the money was good uh and i talked to people that did that had been doing that for years and people who owned restaurants the restaurants that i owned and they were all they all loved it and so i made a conscious decision not to pursue academia and to uh um, basically own a restaurant one day and uh, my first decision was that I didn't know nearly enough about food to own a restaurant. <laughs> so I went to Stratford Chef School uh, and I went there for two reasons. One, it's the best school in Canada and two, uh, the curriculum is really condensed. It's 16 weeks one year and then 16 weeks the next year. The entire curriculum is only 32 weeks long and uh, I didn't want to lose my girlfriend or leave my apartment or move my cats. So I was in a, uh, This i I'm now married to this woman. We have children. She's and pretty she's, great. She's the best. Um uh-huh. So I really liked Stratford because it means uh, I meant I could go and and do this really intensive curriculum. uh, And I was academic in nature, and I really liked that, and I could just come back to Toronto. So I went to the school there and uh, came back, and uh, I was going to learn about restaurants there, but not really become a chef. I came back and was like, man, I'm such a great pastry chef. I aced pastry. I was good at bread and good at cakes. And so I came back and was like, I'm going to become a pastry chef. Uh, I have a gift for it. It's really exciting. No one else really does it. And then I promptly got a job at a butcher shop, um, <laughs> slicing carrots. Man, and the day that I was there slicing so carrots, yeah, totally. <laughs> So I was there slicing carrots and doing veg prep, and um, the butcher was awesome. This guy Sebastian, he was from Chile, breaking whole animal, doing things in an old world way, like just legendary stuff. This new boutique butcher shop in Toronto called the Healthy Butcher, and uh, the butcher's apprentice walked out one day, like literally mid shift, took his apron off, flipped the bird. And uh, I was just in the right place at the right time. the butcher looked at me and was like, so you're the next apprentice? And I said, "Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And so that really has guided my career kind of since that day. Um, I became his apprentice and learned to butcher a whole animal and buy food directly from the farm and run a butcher shop and, uh, at that time in Toronto, you could do all the curing and smoking and charcuterie you wanted. The legislation hadn't changed. Uh, meat Regulation thirty one hundred five, which is, I'm sure, a whole other podcast. But uh, it's gonna be another podcast. Yeah, yeah. At that time, you could do all those things in a shop, and so we could bring in whole animal and make pastrami and make bacon and make mortadella and like all the lunch meat in the counter we made in house. Uh, we did all our own brining and smoking. It was it was awesome. It was really really great, and then. Uh, after the meat regulation changed and you could no longer do those things in butcher shops um i made the decision to move back out to restaurants which was really my original passion i took all the skills and knowledge that i'd acquired there and started building restaurant programs and menus i um, working with chefs buying a whole animal and making menus based on whole animal and then doing all that charcuterie and brining and curing in the restaurant environment which Meat Regulation 3105 distinctly said they had no capacity to police or monitor and it would become this netherworld. Uh, And it it did. I mean, the restaurants in Toronto really exploded in terms of creativity because they became a bastion for um, all these really creative artisanal processes that the government was regulating on a commercial level. Yeah, and they pushed a lot of these artisans into the restaurant industry. You know, and the restaurant industry really benefited as a result.
0: It's amazing your career has been shaped by that change in policy. Uh,
1: yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of people. <laughs> uh, you know, it's anyways. It's a, it's a really compelling subject. But um, yeah, I mean, I read something the other day, and this guy said, uh, you know, your life. This is Joe Walsh, actually, from the Eagles. He said something like, you know, your life seems like when you're in it. A whole bunch of moments that have absolutely nothing to do with each other, and that you're just making it up as you go and clutching from one thing to the next. But then, when you look back on it years later, it looks like a finely crafted novel. And it's funny; the story I just told you makes it seem like uh, those there, things all worked together. You know? yeah, but yeah, I, like definitely. there was no, there was no real plan.
0: I spent a ton of years in restaurants. Like I, all through my undergrad, I was a waiter in the summer times. I'd go up to Muskoka and and serve tables or be a bartender or a wine steward ended up in law school and then came out and worked downtown for a while and now sort of returned as well. I mean, what's neat when you, you describe your experience, it sounds like it was driven by ethics in a lot of way of being able to, to really look at whole animal butchery and food waste and how you source animals. And like, that's something that's like at the heart of Richmond station as well, right? Is really thinking about things in terms of ethics and, and what's right.
1: Yeah. It's the philosophy background. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. For sure. I think a lot of that, for me, comes from the years that I was at the Healthy Butcher driving around trying to find the best product. And uh, honestly, you meet so many farmers and you sit in their living room and you have tea with them or they make you lunch. And you understand what the challenges are that they face and how they price their product and uh, how it is that urban consumers or uh, purchasers can help meet them halfway what responsibility you have in the city to help people that live in the country and i'm and not to say that farmers are always right <laughs> about those things it's not like they hold the moral high ground and they can say what they need i mean I'll, there are a lot of farmers that are wrong about those uh things but um you know the truth is that experience really like it was i think the the ethics that you mentioned really is developed from those conversations and they really are just it's the it's the sum of many many small conversations and saying well if this person who is a stakeholder in this product needs this thing over here, say a certain delivery day or pickup time or purchase price, you know. And the customer, who is also a stakeholder, needs this, and you bring those things together and solve those problems. It seems like ethics, but it's uh, I think it's just it's way more practical than that.
0: Out of yeah, well respect, right?
1: But but if all those people, if all the stakeholders get what they want, you can keep doing it. Yeah, you know. And I think to me that was the beginning of sustainability, you know if you can do things well and they work for everybody and ethically that's fair for everybody then that's sustainability right that's the equation for sustainability if somewhere in the in the chain or in the process there's someone who's being treated unethically that's going to give at some
0: point it's going to break well this i mean this fits into what i've brought you in here to talk about today really well Uh, i the first podcast that we did was with carly dunster Uh, And it was in uh, late summer last year and a really hot topic uh, in 2015 was uh, restaurants having a hard time finding and keeping kitchen staff. There are a variety of articles that came out about uh, substance abuse issues, uh, toxic cultures in certain places, uh, gender issues. Uh, And really, I mean, in a lot of ways, 2015 was the first year where the public sort of stuck their head into the kitchen. And what's interesting about that is it's forced the public to try and reconcile something that the restaurant industry has been trying to do for some time. I mean, in Canada, if you listen to the CBC at all, at least three times a year on The Current, uh, there will be a, a segment on a restaurant that will be trying to eliminate tipping. They talk to regular Canadians, and what's been interesting in 2015 as well though is a lot of really high level counterparts of yours in the United States by david chang or by uh, danny meyer have actually started to take this uh, tipping discussion seriously yeah
1: and, and yeah, i think the what restaurants do um, restaurant owners do to to deal with tipping really is a result of the fact that the industry from the consumer end functions like nothing else i mean there's very few things you buy where you're like, well, that's the price and I'm going to leave 20% more. <laughs> I liked it so much. I like, that's great. I'm going to pay you and the government the tax and more. And I'm just going to leave that because I feel I should or because I'm worried that if I don't, I'll be vilified or because my parents taught me I ought to or I'm traveling and they kind of told me in the handbook that when I come here, I'm supposed to do that. You know, it, it really it, it really is a unique component of the industry and it's interesting that... Um, both the public and the media, and now people in the industry are looking at that and saying, yeah, is that forever? Is that, a, is that a, a weak point of the industry? Is that a strength? How did that start in the first place? Should we keep doing that? Am I allowed to stop doing that? I don't know that restaurateurs have ever felt like that was their decision. We've never, I mean, as a restaurant owner, I never instituted tipping.
0: Wait, I've never asked anybody to tip. Popular culture, But right. I've
1: also just expected it to happen. Yeah, it, it was always there when I started. Um, I've never I've never to be really fair, I've never given it a ton of thought. And so the recent discussion I think is really interesting for that reason alone.
0: Yeah. well where does it get us right? I mean in Ontario, we've got two minimum wages. we've got a minimum wage for everyone and then for servers we've got one that's 20 uh, percent less, 15 percent less to account for this. like that's how built into our culture it is.
1: yeah and it used to be even less than it is now, I think when I started. Uh, when I started serving, well, I bet I'm guessing I don't have all the data, but I mean, like I think the minimum wage for me was somewhere between four and five dollars, okay. whereas minimum wage for for kitchen cooks and stuff like that was probably around nine or ten. So we were at about half.
0: And the difference being that I typically would walk out of my job with a hundred bucks of cash in my pocket yeah. to go and give back to the servers at another bar. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's an ecosystem. Yeah. Everyone's giving back except for the kitchen staff, who never did. When I was a kid, I spent my summer, I spent one summer uh, up in Muskoka in cottage country uh, working actually like pretty crazy hours given that I'm pretty sure I was not allowed to work. I was 13 and 14, didn't have a social insurance number. Uh, I was being paid minimum wage to wash dishes. I uh, used a meat slicer to cut frozen bacon and then bake it into bacon bits and fill little sauce containers with blue cheese dip for, for wings. And that was my scene hilarious summer. But as soon as I turned a reasonable age to go and do such a thing, I was 17, uh, I went to a resort for a summer job. And the first thing I did was I said, there's no way I'm going back to the kitchen, just solely on an economic basis. I can go out and actually make some cash if I serve tables, like there's a value add there. And so for me, it was like it completely cut off the notion of spending time in a kitchen, learning an actual skill as opposed to just Flirting with guests, I guess.
1: And and for me, I, I kind of made the opposite decision. I started serving and I started as a barback and then a busser and then a, uh, you know, a server and a bartender. And, and then I made the decision to go to chef school and, and I started working in kitchens and became a butcher and I took a drastic pay cut for many years. Yeah. Um, For many, many years. And it, it was, it was really hard. But at the same time, I was acquiring skills that I knew, knew, I hoped <laughs> would serve <laughs> me well later, later in my career. Um, And and they have, and that worked out well for me. Uh, I can't guarantee that it works out well for everybody. You know, and often people actually make the jump the other way, and they move kitchens from kitchens and go to front of house. Right. Uh, I know a handful of people like that. And we have a server who went to culinary school and worked in kitchens and was a chef on boats and then was like, I don't really understand the long-term goal here. I'm going to continue working for minimum wage or slightly better. I'm going to go become a server. The disparity in income is pretty incredible.
0: So we've got restaurants in the U.S. that are trying to figure out a solve to this. And, and the thing that's been targeted has been tipping. And so the notion is that if you ban tipping, you create an egalitarian workspace like any other where you're going to be paid on the basis of whatever skill you have as opposed to uh, on someone's obligation or feeling that you should be given something extra. But you in particular, and no one else, I, and that's been really fascinating to watch. You've been tracking this really closely.
1: Yeah, I, I love what Danny Myers is doing. Danny Myers has been, an, uh, you know, an inspiration for me since I was young. I've, I've read his books and eaten at his restaurants. I, I spent uh, some time in the summer a few years ago working at Gramercy Tavern under oh, Michael Anthony. Yeah, and honestly, look, his company's really beautiful. His staff are wonderful. It's really special. You know, if you could bottle it, it'd be worth millions. It's just he's a he's a really brilliant guy. And his, he's got tons of staff behind him that are also really brilliant and caring. So seeing him go through this change really turned my attention to it. I know that Nick Kokonason of Alinea, mm-hmm. so Grant it's his partner, uh, who's a really astute businessman as well, some of those people, Thomas Keller, they made this change a few years ago. And it made some splash. But realistically, they're running top-tier restaurants globally. I mean, it's $300 a person to sit down there. The type of people that... Go there. what It wasn't really like a John Q. Public sort of thing,
0: right? It's a well Michelin three star restaurant. Yeah, yeah
1: right. it didn't gain a lot of interest, but for people like me that were in the industry, we we're like, oh, that's interesting. I bet at that level of restaurant, that would really work. To see Danny Meyer do it company wide, to start with uh, the restaurant at MoMA, and then move out from there, it's um it's interesting to see someone say we're going to do this in more than one restaurant at different price points for all our staff. And his reasons for doing it are business-oriented, but also ethical. He said, you know, for business reasons, this is gonna provide career-based upward mobility and meaningful incentives for people across our company at all different levels, Mm. whether they're porters or dishwashers or stewards or line cooks. They're now not gonna be working for minimum wage or or moderate wages. Curious about where their career is gonna go, their entry-level wage is gonna be set and then the tiered capacity to progress up to higher and higher incomes and then into management will be really well mapped out.
0: Well, it's to keep the server who is now a server but has culinary training in something that he's more passionate about.
1: It's really, really fascinating. If you think about the restaurant industry model, essentially for 100% of the revenue that comes in, the general industry standard is to say, well, 30% of that is going to be labor. If another 20 percent on top of this, so you have 100 percent revenue that obviously doesn't count tips because restaurants don't count tips as revenue. right But if on average, let's say 20 percent 20 percent tip at a table, now you're taking 100 percent of your revenue and the number you have to work with is 120 percent. So that's your new 100 percent. Yeah, you have 20 percent more revenue. If you add that to the 30 percent labor, now you're at 50 percent labor of the original number. Right. doesn't make sense so you've yeah, taken yeah, yeah, you've taken your sales, added twenty percent and said I'm going to distribute that all to my staff right It's a really significant increase. You get to not double but pretty close to double your labor budget as the owner by saying, we're going to build tips in right And right now and then you get to say, well, now that the tips are owned by the house. I feel the manager should get this much. I feel the dishwasher should get this much. I think the steward should get this much. I think the host who works the front door should get this much. I think the person who answers the phone should get this much. I think the person who comes in and works overnight when no one's here. Yeah. And cleans and mops and makes all the hamburgers and sets everything up and and peels all the onions and peels all the garlic. I think that person should make this much. And you you really get to define all those pay rates. And you do that because... As the owner, you've said, well, the 20% of tips that comes in, now uh, I get to control this. There's a lot of pushback against that idea, and I understand why, because right now that 20% is distributed to a really small proportion of the staff at the restaurant, and they
0: feel that it's rightly theirs. Traditionally, it's been theirs. uh, For the foreseeable future, it'll be theirs. Like, I really depended on that 100 bucks in cash or 80 bucks in cash or whatever came in. Like, that was very meaningful to my bottom line. Not that it wasn't the people in the kitchen. But for me, in terms of how I had set up my student budget, that was built in and a required part in order for me to buy textbooks and live and, and that sort of thing.
1: But if you'd taken $70 every night instead of 100 could you have still gone to university?
0: If I knew that's what I was getting? Oh, absolutely. And then if I knew that was what I was getting.
1: And if that meant that the 10 people in the kitchen were also all going to make $70, do you think the 10 of them then could have gone to university?
0: Yeah, well, they were all going to university somehow. But absolutely, I get your, absolutely get your point. So I think Danny, Danny
1: Meyer's point is, listen, you're going to take a lot more people and give them similar upward mobility. So Jeffrey Sachs, who's a, an economist that's been writing about poverty for a long, long time. Yeah. He says, listen, there's this ladder of income. And to eliminate poverty, really what you're trying to do isn't putting everybody in the middle of the ladder. But you want to get everybody on the bottom rung of the ladder. Because anyone who's not on the bottom rung of the ladder can't go up the ladder. Yeah. So you're really trying to get everyone on the bottom rung of the ladder and then build policy that helps people move up the ladder. But if your policies actually help people in the middle of the ladder make it to the top, you're not doing anything about the people who are not on the ladder at all. Is this what Danny Myers is doing? I don't think so. I've never read that he is considered Jeffrey Sachs or those kind of global ideas. But the truth is what Danny Myers is saying is Everybody in his business is a dedicated hospitality professional and it doesn't make sense to him that the money that comes in, thats the tip money, is allocated to a certain amount of his staff, of which he has no say over. And those people are incented by the customers, not by him as the employer. And then the people who are left, he has to find a reasonable way to pay and motivate and train and, and give them upward mobility and, and, a, and a reasonable career path that they'll stay committed to. And want to stay committed to year over year over year. Um, So either way, it's a meritocracy no matter how you cut it. But I think Danny Meyer's point is, as the business owner, it would be great if I was able to determine where merit is rewarded. Whereas right now, I pay people and that's the reward for their merit. Right. And then there's this other money that comes in that the customer allocates. I, I think it would be really, really interesting to create an app. People have on their phone, and when they leave their tip, let them say, "I want 20% to go to the kitchen, 80% to go to my server, or I want the manager who really solved this problem for me, who who fixed the dish that came with the thing that I'm allergic to on it, and the manager sorted it out, and then brought me a little cocktail in between." I think the manager should get it all, actually, or I think the house should be able to figure it out. And I think right now. If you could gather all that data in, in restaurants all over and just let people submit that and it was all anonymous, I think what you'd get back from what the customer believes is happening to their tips is very different than what is actually happening to their tips. That's genius. So, so take the restaurateur out of it. Yeah. Take the government out of it. Take the debate between front of house and back of house and who's worth what. You don't really know what the customer intends when they leave that money. A server would say, well, that's mine. That's clear. That's the custom. That tip is all for the servers. It's status quo. And every restaurant has a different policy, and there's nothing that governs this. But some restaurants will say, well, some of that should go to the support staff. Some of that should go to the food runner. The host should get a little bit of that. And the kitchen should definitely get some of that. So the restaurant will say, well, 1% is going to go here, 1% is going to go there, and 2% is going to go here. And servers will agree or disagree with that and find a place to work where that fits their ethics or their acceptable standard and say, well, the tip out is reasonable. That's something that servers will say, well, I like the tip out here is good. I think that if you publish that data to your customers, for us, so let's say I have a restaurant. If I told our customers on the bottom of the menu, hey, for every dollar you leave of your tip, 75 or 80 cents is going to go to the server and 10 cents is going to go to the kitchen or whatever. I wonder if people wouldn't say, actually, I think the kitchen should get half. Like the reason I come to your restaurant is the food, you know, or the reason I come to your restaurant is the service. I don't think the kitchen should get it. I never eat when I'm here. Right. Uh, I mean, what would people say? And and, and, and how would it work if they could actually choose to allocate that? So what Danny Myers has said is, uh, listen, tipping is a a merit-based reward that we've long presumed we understand the intention of and we've let that stand as status quo for a very long time but in that period of time wages have increased pretty significantly in restaurants and always on the front of house side management get paid more servers get paid more and very little is left to raise kitchen wages um and and that statistic the statistics in the states are a little different than they are in canada i'm sure but he said, you know, listen, I think that that has to be made more equal. Uh, and he said, I'm going to do that in my restaurants, <laughs> which That's, I think is really brave.
0: I mean, again, this idea of sustainability, right? Like, like, not necessarily being ethics, but being something where if you keep doing this, everyone will be fine. Like, they will keep doing it. There's a Facebook group that is a space for really practical information, but also some bending. Mm-hmm. And one of the constant gripes is I take 10 interviews and two guys show up, and those two guys, they work a couple shifts, and then sometimes they take off. Like, I can't keep staff here. That would suggest the model we have right now isn't sustainable. Yeah, and Danny Meyer,
1: yeah, Danny Meyer experienced exactly that at The Modern, the restaurant in his group that's going first and making this change. They've been trying to hire cooks for close to three or four months and not even getting resumes. First, they started to get 10, 12 applications a day. No matter how you cut it, it's it's money, right? It's incentive-based. People want to get paid fairly.
0: So in Ontario, we just passed a law in November, uh, early December of last year, that expressly prohibited any payment of tips uh, to management. Uh, And I think that uh, historically it makes a lot of sense, right? Like there was not a a friendly manager who Mm -hmm. was taking a cut of your tips. It was someone who probably you know, wasn't working necessarily for you, but, but wanted a little chunk of change. Uh, and, and we passed a bill that said, uh, the first draft was one line and it was management shall not take employees' tips. And it was nuanced a little bit to deal with uh, unionized workspaces and collective agreements, that sort of thing. But it's fairly black and white. Um, and so that makes the group of people who can accept tips even even more small or exclusive. So how did you respond to that new piece of legislation?
1: Well, it has no impact on Richmond Station. We, we Our managers don't get part of the tips, uh, and they never have, uh, and they never will. So that's uh, it's a it was a non-issue for us. Um, definitely saw that happen and thought, okay, oh, cool. let's see how that change uh, goes down. Honestly, all the good restaurants that I know and all my peers that own restaurants, the managers there don't get tips. Right. Um, and, and mostly because it's thought of as unfair it's perceived as unfair and it's not 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 good to be unfair right i think if you want to have the best restaurant in the city and you want to have really great hospitality and you want guests to come in and have a really brilliant experience you simply have to have the best front of house staff yeah available you want the best servers in the city to work for you you want the best service bartender you want the best host at the front door you want people to really care about guests and it's hard to have the best people and have a system that's perceived as corrupt. And so the managers in the tip pool is sort of a hands-in-the-cookie-jar kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Do restaurants have a hard time keeping managers around? Because I mean, it seems to me like it's a similar yeah. conversation, right, as, as front and back of house.
1: It's uh, difficult. What's difficult is encouraging your best servers to move up into management. Uh, you know, the truth is if a server makes seventy thousand dollars a year, and that's a pretty average number depending on where you work. And a really good chunk of that is cash, which may or may not be claimed. Yeah. So let's say it's seventy thousand dollars and not like seventy thousand dollars that turns into thirty five or forty after tax, like they're making seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. So they've got about seventy thousand dollars. We're actually going through this right now. One of our earliest managers uh, is about to have a baby. Which great, she's not gonna be around any longer. This is a great thing in your company when your staff grow up and they have families, and you embrace those things. So then I'm going to go to the best managers I could possibly get in the city, which truthfully are already on my staff, and they're the servers that I have. So the servers work for me, and I want them to become a manager. And this manager probably makes, if they've never done it before and they're just starting, they've never managed. I'm going to say fifty, fifty-five thousand dollars
0: a year. That's a big haircut.
1: So now you're asking someone to take on more responsibility, work longer hours and get paid less money and manage their peer group that they just left to take a pay cut from. And there's not a lot of industries that work this way, you know, and I feel like if you're a doctor, you probably make more than a nurse. And if you're the principal of a school, you probably make more than the teacher. That's a generally accepted principle in a lot of industries. And in the restaurant industry, it doesn't always work that way. Sure, the chef gets paid more than the dishwasher and garde manger gets paid more than the dishwasher and the entremetier gets paid more than the garde-manger and the sautier gets paid more than the entremetier and the kitchen works that way it doesn't really work that way in the front of house. that's right the the food runner will make more than the host the support staff will make more than the food runner the server will make more than the food runner but then the manager doesn't make more than (laughs) the server and that's not because Ownership wants it that way, and that's not because of the way we distribute the wages. We pay the servers as little as we possibly can. They make minimum wage. They actually make less than minimum wage. They have their own category of minimum wage. But then all this money gets left on the table every day, and it's customarily presumed that that's their money. And so, and again, I'd never really given that a lot of critical thought until a lot of these changes started happening. You know i think it's katie kingsbury writes for the boston globe she just won the pulitzer prize for a series of pieces she wrote in 2014 called service not included and she did this really brilliant investigative journalism piece for the boston globe about what's happening in the restaurant sector and she breaks down you know in the united states how many people work in that industry and it's millions of people and how many of them work at or below the poverty line and it's millions of people and how many people in that industry have a union It's very few. How how many of them get paid days off? Wow, it's even less. So she really starts to expose these ideas. And and then the reason she won the Pulitzer and the reason the Pulitzer Committee says they gave her the prize is that she didn't just sort of run roughshod over these ideas. She dug deep into a lot of different shops and said, let's take this person, for instance. Joey here gets to work at this time and he leaves at this time and he gets paid this much money. That's illegal in every state, (sighs) but manageable. And this is in Boston. And she does it again and again and again. It's a really brilliant set of articles. And this whole collection of pieces that she won the Pulitzer for is called Service Not Included. This, I think, was the driving factor for Danny Meyer to make his changes, which he calls hospitality included. And in Danny Meyer's movement, he's saying, listen, I'm going to make these changes at my restaurant. And you're never going to stop someone from tipping. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't. You can't actually. Yeah. But you're going to say, listen, this is a non-tipping restaurant. You can put it on your menu. You can have the servers explain why it doesn't, why it's not treated. There is still going to be a problem of like what happens if there's more money. Um, I just want to say that for us, uh, Carl and I, we've talked about this quite a bit, and the real challenge is what justification do you have for saying to the people who work for you that are brilliant at their job, best in class, whose work you totally adore, and say listen, the money that you've been making till this point is not really justifiable. We're going to wrap our arms around that money, distribute that more fairly. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to start to get a way bigger paycheck. That's going to be taxed. Yeah. You're not going to see cash every day anymore. Um, but the benefit to you is that you can feel good about the fact that all that money is now being fairly distributed. And the people you work with your peers your colleagues your friends and those are important words yeah those people are now going to get a really really big pay increase yeah you know and so at our place we could if we took 15 to 20 percent tips and claimed them as revenue and then paid tax on that i'd probably be able to pay every single person that works for us fifty thousand dollars a year like base that's, amazing. that's a lot of money that's a, That's a lot of money for a dishwasher or a kid that just got out of school. And maybe you want to create some merit-based uh, stratification there and say, great, well, you just got out of college and can't yeah. peel garlic yet. 40. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: You've been a career server for most of your life and you bring an enormous amount of value here. 65. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say that everyone has to get paid the same, but, but the money would be there to really raise base-level salaries. Yeah. Um and like Danny Meyer says about his company, then you really get to sit down with a lot of your staff and have a meaningful conversation and say, what do you want to do with your life? What, do you like this industry? Do you see yourself in this industry in 10 years, 15 years? What kind of training do you need? Do you want to go to wine school? Do you right. do you want to take a trip and, and do some professional development? How can we how can we help you out? And that happens in a lot of it industries. happens
0: in every other industry. It
1: happens in our industry, but with really select people. Okay. Because you can't consider everyone to be in it for the long haul because, frankly, they're not making enough money to viably consider it for the long haul.
0: It falls into this broader living wage discussion. Uh, What's interesting in the hospitality sector is that there have been a few restaurants that have tried this uh, and they have failed. And they've failed because their turnover and bleed uh, from their front of house staff as soon as they go to a more egalitarian policy is significant and they lose that talent. And suddenly the problem that we described in back of house is exactly the same as the problem we have in the front of house. Well, and in both cases, it's driven by economic opportunity. As a server, if you know you can go somewhere else and still make what you used to make at $70,000 largely tax-free uh, elsewhere, then, then it is logical that you would wanna go somewhere else and do that. And so you sent me an article uh, about a restaurant in San Francisco, uh, true Norman, and uh, bar Agricole. They started to get rid of tipping, but have now, I think they've been doing it for around a year. They're, they're having second thoughts. I mean, like you said, the best restaurants in the city, they have to have great kitchens. You have to have great food to be part of that conversation, obviously, but you also have to have phenomenal service. How do you deal with retaining great service? I mean,
1: phenomenal service is a huge part of it. And, um, I think the answer to your question is that you need to do it as an industry. You need to do it as a team. Um, I'd love to be part of this in in Toronto if it is something that other owners wanted to do. But I think you'd have to sit around a table, pretty like a big one, like this one, Glenn. Uh, You know, you (laughs) sit around a big table and you'd have to have a a, a good amount of people there. You know, you'd have to have 10 or 12 restaurant owners, you know, and, and, and have a few of them be the kind of restaurant owners that own five or six restaurants. Yeah you know, uh, Anthony Rose and um, Peter Oliver and Michael Bonaccini and uh, Jeff Stober at the Drake, if you had a good amount of people and they could represent enough change, um, you know, the the King Food Company, the guys that own Buka and stuff, if you had enough people there and you said, great, let's talk about these the ideas, are we going to make a change like this? And if you say, yeah, well, we're going to make this change, you kind of want to say, what day are we going to do it on? And we're all going to do it at the same time. Because right. the real risk for myself, if, if I'm the person that makes this change, is that all my staff who make seventy thousand dollars a year and then make fifty five or fifty are going to say, "Great, I'm going to go work at Puka, or I'm going to go work at Scaramouche, or I'm going to go work at um, wherever else I want to work, where they still basically, it's just going to be the best staff in the city moving to what will become increasingly the last bastion of allowable tipping." Yeah, and so. You know, for myself, I've run my head around this entire idea a handful of times. And, uh, you know, when I come back to it, I feel like this is this kind of thing happens in industries often. And you have to just wait for the government to mandate change. Right. You know, or or you need a consensus among a large enough group of leadership within the industry, which can happen as well.
0: It's I mean, in all the names that you just threw down, all of those guys spent years in the kitchen. Right. Like they know how, tar- how hard it is. It worked out. But for most of their careers, it was it was a slog, yeah
1: well, but but I would say all of them too think the same way um, or similarly to the way that I do, which is that servers are a rare breed, and um I think in this discussion, what does get lost quite honestly is is really how hard it is to be a server. It's not an easy job, it's not the kind of thing that's easily dismissed as well. I serve a few nights a week or I do it part-time and and there are people who do it a few nights a week and they do it part-time because the money's so good that you can make full-time money. But that doesn't mean that they're less dedicated or that they're less competent. The truth of the matter is, if you've ever done it, it's a really hard job. And at the level that we ask our staff to do it, it's very complicated. It takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of experience and it takes a lot of personal investment. And I don't believe when I hear people say, well, they shouldn't make that much, or that's not fair, fair is as fair does. When there's a long history of that, of that trade making that kind of money, far be it for me to say that it's not worth that. What What is it worth? Customers leave extra money saying, hey, this is worth more than what you charged me for. Do they mean for that to go to the server? Like I said, I'd love to see some appraisal of that content i think would be really great
0: i think we've all had that instance where we're like you know service tonight was brutal but yeah you gotta gotta leave something i'm not gonna be that guy
1: yeah and and i think that what the real challenge is when you look at what some people in the restaurant make directly compared to what other people make um that's when it becomes uh, an ethical issue i think um and an issue that you have to look at and say well is there something that can be done about this And then the question is, well, well, let's say, is there something that should be done about this? Yeah, I'd argue probably there should be. Then how best to do it? Do you wait for the government to say tipping is now illegal, all money that gets left in the restaurant has to be claimed as revenue? That'd be pretty easy to do. So right now um, we're in a pretty unique unique space uh, as a business, not for our industry, but compared to other businesses we make more money than we should we we collect more money than our gross revenue right every day right to the tune of 15 to 20% we collect 15% more money every day than we should we have the bill the HST and then there's more money yeah and that's not my money i know that well whose money is it if i determine where that money goes specifically to a person this money belongs to Joey, and this money belongs to Sarah. I have to put that on their T4. They have to claim it as revenue. I have to remit EI, CPP, WSIB, all that kind of stuff. There is, a, from what I understand, basically a distance there that the CRA takes that says, listen, as long as you don't control that money, you're allowed to sort of plead ignorance and say well, you don't know. Right. So we know every day how much money we collect that's not ours.
0: Right. With your and
1: credit card ev- every day, one of the servers who does the cash out with us, we calculate how much money is owed to the restaurant, how much money is owed to the government. And then all the rest of the money is given to them. One of them. And they have a system for who gets what. Because as soon as I police it, I have to... They all have to pay tax on it. Right, right. So that seems a bit made up.
0: It's a <laughs> like, legal fiction.
1: Well, but it seems like a, there's a lot of room for uh, malfeasance, I'll say. And so then from restaurant to restaurant, everyone has their own way of doing things. And then you hear stories about, well, the owner takes tips here or they don't pay their staff properly. There's lots of that. And I've seen lots of that in different places. I think what we do at Richmond Station is is... To be fair, really, really unique and in one of a kind. So we calculate every day how much money we collect that's not ours. and We pay that out in cash every day. Okay. And keep in mind that I'm not going to see that money for probably three or four days because it's electronic.
0: Right, yeah, absolutely.
1: It's going to be maybe a week before I see some of it. Wow. So I'm actually paying them cash before I even make the money. That's how... I'm going to say good our system is. And I think part of the reason, there's a few reasons we do that. One, we don't want anything to do with the cash. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tax and legal netherworld um, that we really like to wash our hands of. But the second thing is it really attracts, I feel, the best staff in the industry. Because they can go to another great restaurant that's busy where the tips are good. But they're going to wait for something that's called do and do backs are when a week later, the manager gives you a wad of cash or a check, maybe with a piece of paper in it that says, you made this much when you worked last Wednesday and this much when you worked Friday morning. And when you came in for Saturday brunch, it was this much. And here's that much money. How would a server ever know that that's, I mean, it's a week later, right? Do they remember how good it was Thursday or which customers they had uh, or, or, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's. How do you know the, the management or the ownership is not yeah. skimming from that? Yeah. And frankly, when there's do-backs, more often than not, what I hear from from servers is, well, it probably should have been a lot more. Everyone always feels like it should have been a lot yeah. more. And honestly, in a lot of restaurants, they have a good reason to feel they're right.
0: I used to do those, by the way. I was like, they, they picked a staff member to go and like, instead of uh, well, polishing silverware or doing roll-ups or whatever... I would go into the office, the F&B office, and sit down and and uh, created a spreadsheet and plugged in numbers and then put together envelopes And, and did it.
1: you make that spreadsheet on the company computer?
0: Uh, oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying this is like, all of this is problematic.
1: Yeah, this right, because then they know about it, right? right? And then so the CRA says, well, you knew this revenue was distributed to these people. Why didn't you put on their T4s? So the truth is, I don't know how much our servers make. Yeah. Actually, because the kitchen staff also get a portion of the tips, I don't truly know what they make either. So all i know is what we collect as revenue and what we distribute as wages right i can tell you for sure there's an enormous disparity you know that much yeah but uh i couldn't tell you how much every individual makes um and so that's part of the crux when you ask someone to go and become management they may say well that's a that's really inviting it's an obvious it's a compliment that you think i would be able to run the restaurant when i mean you're not here and um i like the challenge of that everyone likes the idea of quote unquote moving up yeah uh, or whatever um and there are some benefits to it you can get paid when you're not there if you're a server you're there's a bit of a mercenary component when you work you get paid when you don't work you don't get paid if you're a manager you may have health benefits uh you may have some sort of allowance for your phone bill um you have the opportunity to go and do professional development so every restaurant incents the managers different ways you know i think what danny Myers has said is listen we're going to take that sort of amount of money that comes in that we know is not ours and from now on we're going to say it's ours and the first thing we're going to do is pay income tax on that yeah which it boggles my mind that the cra is not interested in making this
0: change and hasn't already we're Just completely but, comfortable with this going straight into someone's pocket yeah, if
1: we do four million dollars a year and and 10 percent of that goes there's extra money on the table that goes unclaimed that's there's $400,000 there. If it's 20%, that's $800,000. Don't pay any tax on that.
0: Yeah. Don't
1: have to. It's not my revenue. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't claim it. I don't claim it as revenue. If the government wants me to claim it as revenue, that's fine. I'll claim it as revenue. But now I get to distribute all of that money.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? Yeah, and that's, and that's really where Danny Myers has gone with this. He said, you know what? A few different people are going to win here. The government's one of them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, the other one is... Although, like, winning or stop losing?
1: Well, winning, for sure, because it's not revenue they see now.
0: Because they choose not to see it, though, which is strange, right? Like, in a way, it's not like it's getting ahead. It's just stopping the ignorance of something that they know exists, right? I don't so it's know if like they do or not. I mean,
1: I think something, you know, if you look through the history of people that have become MPs and senators and mayors and city councilors and stuff, very few of them come from the hospitality industry. Yeah, you know, like there's not really anyone who's who's moved their way into political circles that's like, hey, you know what, this industry I just came from really could use some action. But yeah. there's lots of legislation over law and medicine and transportation and construction and engineering, and, and as there should be. But I think you know we've ran the circle on this idea a few times and theoretically tried to figure out like, well, where does this end up and how do you how do you what's the solution here? Um, You know, in the United States, you can wait for entrepreneurs to lead the way and say, I'm going to make this change and do all the hard work. I'm going to have roundtables. I'm going to have discussions. I'm going to pay a marketing firm to really help me spin this. I'm going to consult with all my staff, and I'm going to make the internal policy changes to do this. Um, You know, or you can wait for the government to say, everyone's got to do this on the same day, and that would be the corollary to my idea earlier, which is you have a really big table and you get a whole bunch of people together to say, this is the day we're going to change this, huh?
0: So we're essentially canvassing stakeholders in this conversation. So we're talking about business owners and the roles that they can play, government and from revenue and also from policy. Uh, we're talking about servers and we're talking about the coworkers in the kitchen and management. The way the public has started to ask questions about their food has completely changed. If you think back to the year 2000 and where we are right now, Uh, And the amount of questions I'm sure you get at your restaurant about where your beef is sourced from or how things are made or dietary restrictions. There are a lot of people that dine on the basis of ethics, right? Free range, antibiotic-free, et cetera, et cetera, non-conventional farming. Where do you think the public or your patrons' role is in this discussion?
1: I don't think the patrons have any role in so far as culpability or ownership. I don't know that, like they're not the people that are going to move the ball on this.
0: Right.
1: I, I don't think, nor should they, but I'd love to know what they think. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to know what they think, and like I mentioned earlier, I, I really wish there was some kind of app or some kind of way to develop an anonymous kind of integrative way for people to say, hey, I logged on to this website, I was at Richmond Station, this is my check number, this is the day that I was there on. I would have distributed my tip this way. And frankly, you can do that old-fashioned. Like You could just give people a card or a piece of paper or ask them to write it down and then give it to someone and someone could data enter all that. That seems a bit arduous and there's lots of room for tampering. But I'd really love to know what people think because I I imagine, I mean, I sat on a a stage and and talked with Corey Mintz a few months ago um, in a movie theater and there's a few hundred people there. We talked a little bit around this issue and kitchen wages and stuff like that. Uh, and I was talking, explaining some of these ideas and I I explained to people in the audience like exactly the percentage of their of their tip. And I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's, you know, essentially when you leave a tip, 80 to 85% of it goes to the servers and maybe 5 to 7% is going to make its way to the kitchen and then a few other people are going to get a little bit, you know, and there was an audible gasp. Yeah. <laughs> the audience was mortified.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and, and, and it was the first time that I was like, Wait, people don't know that? And then you're like, of course, why would they know that? How would they know that? Unless they'd ever worked in a restaurant and been the manager and helped participate in that discussion, like how would they know that? The average person may believe that the kitchen gets 50%, which is so far from the truth. I'm really curious to know what people think about that. And if there was a way to empower their voice to actually make that decision, for them to better allocate the reward in the meritocracy that they control, I'd be all for that because what Danny's, Danny Myers is doing in New York is exactly that. He's saying, you know, the customer running one meritocracy and I'm running another. And at right. times they're at odds with each other. This is my business and I hold the lease. I hire the staff. I motivate them. I train them. I guide their career. And there's this other meritocracy happening within my little company that I don't really get to pull the levers on. And, and it can be frustrating at times. And I want there to be one meritocracy. And I want everyone to be involved in the same system. So, you know, if there was a way to again, develop something where the, the customer could better allocate the reward that's associated and they could, they could identify where well, I think merit goes here and merit goes there, you know, that might be a solution actually.
0: This is a hilarious conversation to me to have is bringing back all these, these memories, because when you speak about it objectively, it sounds insane, but I remember so clearly I was, I was a pretty good server. Uh, in that I could take a lot of tables, I usually had a lot of fun doing it, usually got tips pretty well, and, uh, but could take on a lot of tables and manage time really well. That was, that was my thing, and managers knew that and they'd give me a lot of tables, and others they'd give fewer. And I remember having loose discussions around the idea of even pooling tips as servers and just taking that amount of money and irrespective of how many tables you happen to take, just dividing it up equally. And just saying, you know what, like the house made this tonight, and you happen to get a deuce that went through four bottles of wine, and we looked mm-hmm. the other way. That never happened, but let's suggest mm-hmm. that it did. And another person just got people who came in for water and apps all night, yeah. and so like, why should that person only get thirty dollars in tips? And I'm walking out with two hundred dollars in tips. That sure. seems unfair. As servers, we should be figuring this out. And I was always uh, opposed to that because it would have hurt me. And the way you described a server's life as being very mercenary is always how I felt. And so you work hard, you get paid better. Uh, sometimes you get a little bit short, sometimes you get more, it sort of evens itself out over time. But that was me at, uh, at 20 or 21 or 22. Now when we're talking about like really like societal problems, like the living wage thing is a huge issue and it's a huge issue in all kinds of sectors. But when you tie social outcomes to living wage issues uh what we see in the restaurant industry is pretty simple solve and it's just we're not paying these people enough and so for the public like this notion of having an app where you could divide who sees what or how it goes somewhere without it being in someone's face without it being directly in a server's face
1: they're they're real you know at our place we share all the tips and to your point the, the sorry the servers pool all the tips and um The reason is they all have exactly the same goal. You know, every person should come into Richmond Station, have an awesome time, and want to come back. Regardless of what they spend and when they come in and um, how often they come in or who they are or how they're dressed or what they choose to eat or who their server is. Everyone's everyone's on exactly the same page. You can't walk by a table who needs water and be like, that's not my section. Yeah. Because the guest doesn't win and the restaurant doesn't win and that's why we pay them <laughs> we pay them so the they'll come back and the restaurant will stay in business so so you know we we control a bit of that meritocracy by saying listen you're all on the same team i don't want five of you here and there'll be five different teams plus the team that's the restaurant <laughs> yeah so there's six teams the yeah. five of you individually and then us
0: the diner and maybe and maybe
1: to... we'll be on the same yeah and the, the diner room. The other words, like where where are they in that equation right so pooling tips is a way of saying okay, we're, we're evening out the meritocracy. So now distributing those tips to the kitchen staff and, and saying, you know, that already happens. yeah, It even happens at our place. It's a, an industry standard that a percentage of the tips is carved off and given to the kitchen. And there's sort of an acceptable ceiling of like, well, now that's really a lot. You right. know, that's really, you're getting greedy now. Frankly, I think at our place we could raise it, double it, and people would be like, the side of service would be upset for sure, but they'd say, you know, listen, this is the best kitchen in the city. It's the best food in the city these guys are so dedicated like how can you not yeah yeah and they may argue that at first they may say that's unfair but if the government were to institute policy like what danny myers is doing it'd be a lot more than double
0: yeah yeah
1: that's you know and the the truth is there you're trying to you're not trying to eliminate tipping really you're it's just different ways of skinning the same cat you're trying to wrap your hands around the money that comes in and distribute it more equitably Saying in the law that's passed in Toronto, well, managers can't be tipped, is really just a way of tying the hands of the restaurant owner and saying, well, here's a practice that we actually find so abhorrent, you're now not allowed to do it anymore.
0: Right. We're going to step in and make that decision for
1: you. I don't know why that is, to be honest. I mean, it would be great if the manager's were could be incented by tips. Uh, you know, and as a restaurant owner, I think the manager has an enormous impact on a guest's experience uh you know and almost any time a problem comes up the servers know great i go get the manager and not like the manager comes over to the table and is like i understand there's a problem here (laughs) but they understand they let the manager know so the manager is aware the same way a pilot in a plane they're told that there's some clouds right (laughs) you know it's like great you just want to know the lay of the land yeah you know i don't want anything to sneak up on me here so anytime there's a little rumbling or something seems contentious or or didn't go very well the server says hey listen i just want you to know like is what's going on with this table. And the manager really controls the level of excellence and the level of efficacy. And uh, they have an enormous impact on a guest's experience. And um, I find it hard to believe that customer with the app that I've described would say this much to the kitchen and this much to the server. Manager, zero. I, just, I really don't think they would say that.
0: Yeah. They probably had a hand in how good your night was.
1: Totally. Maybe they answered the phone. Maybe they got you your reservation. Yeah. You know, maybe they remembered you from the last time you were there, maybe you know, maybe all sorts of things. Maybe they opened a bottle of wine for you that we don't normally open, and talked to you about it because they've been to Italy, yeah, and they went to that winery. Like those are those things happen all the time, so it seems strange to me that that uh, you know the province in its wisdom has said, well, managers can't be part of the tip pool. I don't understand it in terms of like, listen, there's some abhorrent behavior and we're going to crack down on that. But as an overall policy, I don't think it considers all the moving parts yeah. that are sort of relative to the discussion we've been having here. And they're all the same discussion.
0: They're all the same discussion. I mean, the hilarious thing for me with I mean, what you struck on here, which is the government, I mean, if pushed, Ontario will come in and, and change your workplace. Mm-hmm. I At law school in our first year, uh, we have a month, essentially three weeks of professionals that come in and give hour-long talks on various things. And I went to Dallas University, out in the East Coast, and a local criminal lawyer, Joel Pink, who's uh, one of the top guys in Nova Scotia, he came in, and I didn't really appreciate this at the time, but he came in and he said, it is your obligation to exceed the rules of conduct and to be a better lawyer than whatever the law society sets out. Because if you are not, the jurisdiction that you practice in will come in and will regulate you. And it happened to doctors and it will happen to lawyers. So it is incumbent upon each of you as lawyers to exceed by far, whatever the regulations are that are set out. And it's the exact same issue here.
1: Well, but there's an enormous risk here, right? So let's say I was to uh, change the policy in my restaurant, the way Danny Meyer has it in his company and, and go first and say, well, this is the new way that I'd like to do things. Um, the, the truth is, you'd be reading that article about Richmond Station instead of about that restaurant in San Francisco that right. made the change and then had to to claw back and say, well, bad idea, bad idea. We're out on a limb. We're the only one <laughs> doing it. All of our staff left for greener pastures. And the staff staff will leave for greener pastures. Um, and, and rightly so. I think that's part of what makes the industry competitive. It's what causes restaurants to improve and to have great practices. Carl and I are are the way we manage the tips at richmond station is i think best in class and it comes from seeing it done poorly in so many other places and as a result not being able to have great staff the best restaurants have the best procedures i would say and maybe there's a handful of exceptions but you know in, in my mind uh what keith and carl do at scaramouche is a shining example, you know, and I could cry talking about it. It's it's beautiful. Their staff have been there for decades. They get paid really, really well. Benefits, time off, reasonable schedules, a great work environment, a busy restaurant, delicious food, fantastic ingredients, an epic wine list. Like they don't lose on any front. And they've been able to find a formula that works really well. I don't know that government regulation necessarily is the answer. Because there are, like you say, there are examples of people who are best in class. Right. Right. But what does it take for the best in class procedures and principles to trickle down to everybody? Uh,
0: The analogy of being spoken to about legal regulation is that we're not worried about the best of class guys. They don't drive this discussion, it's the guys at the bottom. They're the ones that are going to get your hands tied. Uh, The big difference, as you pointed out, is there are a lot of lawyers in the legislature. There aren't a lot of hospitality workers.
1: I think from what I've seen in the time that I've been in restaurants, they do improve more and more. And, and I think the systems that, that my generation has seen be in place, we've really looked at those and said, now that I'm in charge, I'm not going to do that. Right. Right. You know, as tempting as that money seems to skim off the top and take for yourself or put in your own jeans, the truth is it doesn't lead to a better restaurant. It doesn't lead to a better work environment. It doesn't lead to better staff. And good staff and a good work environment and good food is the hallmark of having a really good restaurant. And if you have a really good restaurant, it's going to make you way more money over time than than any kind of playing around.
0: It's amazing. Well, Ryan, this has been fascinating. This has been so great. Thanks to Ryan Donovan of Richmond Station for coming in to speak with me. Our next episode will come out at the beginning of April, featuring Frank Portman, a workplace health and safety lawyer with Stringer LLP. Until then, please don't hesitate to continue this discussion via Twitter or on LinkedIn. And thanks, as always, to Shane McPherson for the excellent music. Thanks for listening.